This episode of the EdTech Podcast is sponsored by Pearson, the world's learning company. In a world of increasing change and technological advancement, the need for people to have transferable skills is more important than ever. Aligned to the future of skills and employability, Pearson BTech prepares learners for the future world of work by providing them the knowledge, technical and transferable skills they need to be successful in their careers and in their lives. For more information about BTech esports qualifications, visit btechworks.com. BET is the global meeting place for the education community. A trusted brand with more than 30 years of heritage, the BET series promotes the discovery of knowledge and technology to enhance lifelong learning. The BET series attracts over 60,000 educators, leaders and practitioners alongside more than 1,250 technology providers from around the globe. Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech Podcast, where our mission is to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. This week I've got a great episode for you, thinking about all things future of work. I'm in conversation with Miriam Partington, the future of work reporter at Sifted, I think educators need to encourage young people to kind of try things out and experiment. As I mentioned, there's so many different avenues that you can get into the workplace now. You know, we're seeing, for example, the rise of the creator economy. We're seeing the rise of the freelancer economy. You know, there's so many different ways of working. Sherry Ashby, the Deputy Chief Executive at Activate Learning. And what we found is that students who can see the relevance of why they're studying what they're studying, they can apply it in a real world setting so that helps their, their motivation and their commitment to put in that effort and, and practice. Uh, and where it becomes so important in preparing students for the world of work is that the more closely they can work with employers, uh, their learning is a more real world and authentic it is. And that really drives motivation. And Dr. Richard George, the VP at Fathom. Uh, it's not just about, say, the culture of the organisation or the it's often to do with the type of work and the enjoyment from that work. So how do we start changing jobs to uh, make it more accessible to different types of people? Listen on to hear about what the future of work demands of us all as both learners and educators. A big shout out to our Skills Series collaborators, Bet and Pearson, who support this week's episode. Let's kick off with Miriam. Here we go. Um, wicked. So, yeah, really delighted. I'm here, virtually speaking, with Miriam Partington, who is the Future of Work reporter at Sifted, a publication covering European startups and technology. So welcome, Miriam. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Miriam has been reporting from Berlin since 2018 and has written for publications such as New Statesman, BBC Tech and Courier, and she continues to write for independent art and design publications in Berlin and London. So that's a little bit about Miriam. Um, Miriam, for this episode, um, you cover future of work at Sifted. What are the consistent trends you're hearing about that we should know about as well? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to answer this question without mentioning inflation, right? And the kind of economic crisis we're going through right now, because I think a lot of companies are having to kind of reassess, you know, what they do when it comes to the employee side of things um, during uh, the economic crisis. You know, there's lots of companies debating about whether to raise salaries, how they then do that. 
instead of raising salaries, do they compensate with new benefits? You know, and I think particularly when we're talking about people getting into the job market now, we're seeing so many layoffs, you know, mass layoffs at big companies, rescinded job job offers and that kind of thing. So I think there's a definite kind of emphasis on HR and like the people function in companies and how they're managing all of these things. Um, But yeah, I mean, we're seeing so much, we're seeing so many new trends after COVID. Of course, you have to mention remote, right? And remote settings are, again, putting a lot of kind of different demands upon managers. So I think the role of the manager is really changing. Um, There's new ways of hiring. You know, a lot of companies are ditching the CV now and using kind of more skill-based assessments. Yeah. Huge focus on employee well-being four-day work week, you know, I could go on, but there's just so much going on in the future of workspace right now. That's really interesting because usually when I ask this question, like you get the, you know, the standard answer, which is around sort of um, continual upskilling and um, and being able to adapt to sort of multiple career demands and upskilling as you go. Um, but it was quite interesting to sort of like really hone in on the, on the here and now and yeah, thinking about that that juggle for employers so they're dealing with these extra costs and yeah at the same time they're dealing with a skills gap crisis and making sure they've got the right resource in their company but it's already like fiercely competitive to recruit the top talent but then on top of that everything's costing more so that's quite that's quite an interesting context to 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 the discussion actually um and you know fr- from the point of view of people going into the workforce then is that just kind of making their life even even more difficult in terms of presenting their case for being in that company how's that playing out on on that side of things do you think yeah I think it's I think it's very difficult to say right because as you just mentioned like there is a huge amount for tech talent but what I'm hearing from a lot of companies is that there's not necessarily a shortage of people there's a shortage of very very good people So that's kind of like on the company side, you know, lots of people are kind of, you know, they've got loads of applications, but they're looking for specific skill sets or whatever. But I have heard about a lot of companies now kind of also trying to recruit for what they call culture fit, right? They're not just looking for candidates that fit the bill when it comes to skills. They want people that, you know, have big ideas, can fit well with the team, you know, can practice their own kind of ingenuity. You know, I think employers want self-starters, you know, especially in teams where, you know, there's a lot of companies, as I mentioned, that have had big layoffs. And so there's these kind of patch patchwork teams going on. So I think any young person going into the workforce now needs to be prepared that, you know, they're not going to be fed anything. They're going to have to just get on with it. Um, but I do, I do think we, you know, there's this narrative that, oh, it's all really doom and gloom and the job market is awful. Um, yes, that is true to an extent and it is incredibly hard for young people. Don't get me wrong, um, especially in the tech industry. But there are so many avenues to get into work these days. You know, I do think that employers are getting a lot more flexible in, you know, their requirements. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't want to always say like this is this is awful because it's it's not. There are other there are other ways to get into into tech and other industries these days. That heavy emphasis on sort of aptitude and sort of you know the attitude of the candidate as well. Yeah, I think I think absolutely, especially in a remote first environment. You know, if you think that there's a lot of graduates right now, um, finishing university, maybe they've never had a real job before. 
and they're going to go into a work environment that's not typical, you know, this remote first environment. There's some companies that operate entirely remotely. So I think young people do have to be, you know, prepared for the fact that they have to be self-managed and they have to own their own work and be mindful of their own development because especially in a startup environment, maybe there's not going to be many people that are, you know, really going to be helping with that. We've kind of talked a little bit from employees and young people going into the workforce, what is expected of them. How does that filter into the education and the sort of support that we're giving young people before they go into the world of work? So those that are developing young people? Yeah, I think, of course, like, it always depends on who you're working with and how much um, financial leeway um, you have as an employee entering the workforce. But I think educators need to encourage young people to kind of try things out and experiment. You know, as I mentioned, there's so many different avenues that you can get into the workplace now. You know, we're seeing, for example, the rise of the creator economy. We're seeing the rise of the freelancer economy. You don't have to go and work a nine to five corporate job anymore. You know, there's so many different ways of working um and I think it's becoming less frowned upon as well to change your job every every year or so um so I do think that educators kind of have to um maybe impress this mindset of flexibility um into into um young people and encourage them to be a bit more kind of entrepreneurial in a way but I think as well of course mental health mental health is huge and I think for educators, whoever it is that is helping young people in in getting into the the job market, um, I think I think mental health needs to be something that is very much taught. You know, what are the warning signs of burnout? You know, how do you manage stress, etc. Those things I would have loved to have had lessons on when I was at school. You know. It's so true because, I mean, we were talking about this um, recently, you know, the the kind of formal way of learning is like, here's how you pass an exam, which gets you to a point. But if you apply that sort of cramming uh, methodology to your whole life, you will hit a wall at some point and it doesn't teach you how to get beyond that wall. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in this unique position of speaking to lots of people in this space. So um, for our listeners, who are some of the interesting people you've spoken uh, to who sort of stick in your mind? And and why is that as well? Yeah, it's a really good question because I speak to so many people on a daily basis, it seems. Um, But if I if I could choose one person to speak about, it's um, a woman called Noor van Boven. And uh, she was the former chief people officer at German FinTech N26. And she also had a similar role at uh, SoundCloud beforehand. Um, And she is an investor now. So she consults with future of work companies um, and works with female founders. She does lots of great stuff. But she's kind of like my point of authority when it comes to human resources and kind of growing organizations. But um. I actually interviewed her recently about um, how young people can get their first job in tech. And I went into the interview thinking that we were going to have a really kind of doom and gloom conversation of, oh, God, yes, it's terrible. Yes, it's going to be really awful for people coming up in the job market. But actually, she just seemed very, very chill. And she was just like, look, there is a tech talent shortage and we need people to fill those those vacancies. Um and she was kind of saying what we were, you know, talking about before, which is that there's becoming less of a template about what a candidate should be and what CV they should have and what background they come from. And it's more about what you can actually bring to that role. And one of the tips 
that she gave, which was, it kind of sounds a bit cliche, but I think it's especially important for young people is, you know, be yourself in a job interview. You know, instead of going into an interview, sitting across the table from someone and saying what you think is expected to be said, Mm -hmm. show some personality, show what you're passionate about, because in a competitive kind of uh, job marketplace, you need to have that edge. You need to have something that stands out. and as I mentioned before, you know, a lot of co- uh, a lot of companies hire for cultural fit now. So they're going to be looking for these kinds of signs. Like, is this the kind of person that you can have a beer with? Is this a problem solver? Is this a person that is going to work really well with the other people in their team? Um, so I think that was kind of like a big key takeaway message for me was don't act the way that other people tell you to act. Just be yourself, you know. And it's, it's really hard to know what to expect because, of course, I spend a lot of time reporting on the tech industry. But, of course, there are still a lot of kind of more traditional or corporate environments that maybe you would have to go into a, a, an interview with a suit and tie and, and whatever. But um, I think, as you said, yes, it's a very kind of candidate focused market at the moment. And I think even some of the kind of like the older corporates really want this kind of startup mentality they know that if they want to recruit young people I mean Gen Z is the next generation coming up in the workforce and they're kind of like these no bullshit kind of people they're very passionate they're very kind of like for climate change and for equality and for diversity and all these other things Um, and so employers are noticing now that they have to they have to shift with the times otherwise they're going to be left behind so I think in a way it's almost a good time to be in the in the market if you're a young person yeah definitely and then how can people follow your work if uh if they're sort of listening in and they want to find out more about what you're doing where you're writing sure so i have a twitter account which i'm slowly getting better at using for a a tech journalist i'm quite an analog person (laughs) so um so um yeah my twitter handle shameless plug is uh at M parts so m-p-a-r-t-s underscore otherwise you can check us out at sifted.eu i loved that chat with miriam and some of the things that resonated the part shift to skills-based assessment the role of the manager and employee changing in the world of remote work and the need to tackle employee well-being All these featured heavily in my subsequent chat with Sherry Ashby at Activate Learning. Here's the quick introduction to Sherry's work before we kick off our chat. Wonderful. So, yeah, um, here with the Deputy Chief Executive at Activate Learning. And um, Sherry has more than 25 years of experience in the FE sector, um, having previously held roles as a teacher, course leader, curriculum manager and assistant principal. So an amazing breadth of experience to bring into the role. Um, Sherry, perhaps we could kick off by um, if you would like to introduce yourself in your own words. So who you are and what you do. Thank you, Sophie. Um, oh, lovely to meet you. And uh, as you say, I've been in education for you know well over 25 years. I, I came in, as so many um, individuals do in TFE, as a part-time teacher and absolutely loved everything about working with students and really you know, literally transforming lives. Uh, my current role, as you say, is Deputy Chief Executive of Activate Learning. What this means day-to-day is I have oversight of our curriculum, and quality of provision, and I, I line manage and have exec oversight of teacher training, teacher development, um, everything around curriculum, curriculum design, 
Um, and uh, yeah, you know, worked very closely with the executive team and ensuring that students have an amazing learning experience, um, which at the heart of our strategic plan and has been since 2014 is our learning philosophy, uh, which I know we'll be touching on. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just for those people listening in, could you give us a sense of the scale of Activate Learning? So in terms of pupils and your your various sort of uh, campuses or, you know, the scale in all of those different ways as well would be great. So so we are a large um, FE college group. Um, we span three counties, so Surrey, Oxfordshire and Berkshire. And within those three counties, we have eight campuses. Uh, in terms of total numbers of students, it's around the 20,000 mark in terms of both part-time and full-time students. We have a, an apprenticeship arm, delivery arm as well, Activate Apprenticeships. Um, and we also do are the sponsor for Activate Learning Education Trust. And I'm actually the chair of the trust board, um, which in which we have six schools, um, of which uh, for our UTCs, University Technical Colleges, um, so it is a large um, group which delivers uh, further education, higher education, apprenticeships, and then a sponsor to schools. Fantastic. Thank you. And I'll pick up on your point earlier about the um, part time coming into this part time, because I think that's really relevant for some of our later discussion. But um, so you, you mentioned your sort of learning philosophy. Um, I've got here that um, Activate Learning has won industry awards previously for your learning philosophy, which you talked about there. Um, can you summarise what this approach is and how it relates to supporting young people into this sort of new world of work, which is emerging at the moment as well? So absolutely, at the heart of our approach to planning and delivering and assessing learning is what we call our learning philosophy, and that consists of three elements. Um, it looks at the impact of brain and mindset, uh, motivation and emotion on students' learning and engagement. And, and really what that means in a, in a very sort of practical sense is um, it always starts with students being feeling confident, feeling positive about their learning. So often we have students coming to us who have had a, a positive learning experience before, um, or they might lack confidence or self-esteem, and it's how we work with them to build confidence, build self-belief. Um, in terms of mindset and brain, realising that actually intelligence isn't fixed at birth, but through hard work, practice, and effort um, and learning from feedback and learning from failures that actually you can succeed and you can achieve what you need to. And a lot of, um, we have our strategic drivers as well, of which one is neuroscience. And neuroscience shows us very clearly that um, the more effort and practice you put into learning a new skill, uh, the more likely you are to recall it at a later date and to acquire that, that knowledge and skill. Um, and so emotion and brain are really important. But of course, the other ingredient and element is motivation. And what we found is that students who can see the relevance of why they're studying what they're studying, they can apply it in a real world setting. Mm. So that helps their, their motivation and their commitment to put in that effort and, and practice. Uh, and where it becomes so important in preparing students for the world of work is that the more closely they can work with employers either directly in, in industry placement or work experience or through employer-led projects, the more relevant uh, their learning is, the more real world and authentic it is. 
And that really drives motivation. And of course, at the same time, they're developing industry relevant skills um, and attributes. And really, so we, we took the, the learning philosophy and in terms of translated it into an attributes framework, which we co-designed with employers. And the attributes framework has sort of five key elements to it, which is looking at um, professionalism, aware, awareness, self-awareness, resilience, confidence, and, and being enterprising. And students sort of work on different targets relating to those attributes. And all the feedback we've had from employers is that whilst, of course, qualifications are important and qualifications will get you in the, into the door of the job, what will really win you that, that work is, is are those sort of softer skills and the attributes. And those are co-designed with employers. So it gives you a kind of sense of, of what the learning philosophy is about and how from that we've developed a, an attributes framework to actually implement that in learning. Yeah, absolutely love that. And you, you use that word authentic. And um, I did a bit of work recently, it was about um, assessment and looking at, you know, um, authentic assessment. So given that amazing learning philosophy and the attributes, how do you then steer away from what has been the tradition of you pass this exam, you get your grade, you are a success in inverted commas, whereas, you know, what you're talking about is, is it, is to deal with the wicked problems of this world and, and more complex. How do you then go about sort of measuring that um, as an educational institution as well? Mm-hmm. It would be really interesting. I think it is, It is as you say, it is about going almost beyond the qualification. Um, so in terms of BTEC programmes, rather than delivering a unit by unit, um, almost siloed learning where students can't quite see how does this all link together and how is it relevant and, and developing those employability skills or attributes that we were talking about earlier what what we do is is a project-based learning approach which is taking um, from our employer um, partners real world project problems if you like and and planning um, the delivery of learning through those those projects um, so that students are working in a much more real life real world way uh, because as we know in in a in a real world setting you you're not dealing with problems in a unit by unit basis, but you're dealing yeah. with this together. Only, only. I think uh, one of the challenges remains, of course, is uh, where we, you still have external assessment that is based on, uh, you know, writing exams or and and that you still we still tied to. But in terms of what we can do with students through formative assessment. Um, and uh, developing the readiness for work through, you know, project-based learning, uh, that that really helps students' engagement and motivation uh, as well. So I've got I've got two more questions. So so one of them I'll just go straight into it is um, what is the role of technology and humans in this learning philosophy? So mm. where where do you use both? I suppose it's it, that's an interesting question. Um, technology is again one of our strategic drivers and is really important to us. Uh, we, we absolutely see technology as being an enabler uh, to enable students to learn. And it's important in, in many different ways, actually, in supporting students. So, for example, um, you know, in helping students to be empowered to own their learning and to be in control of their learning, enabling them to learn more about any time, any place, anywhere, or having that control over being able to access learning online is really important. 
uh, both for our 16 to 18 year old students who are on campus, but also access learning online. That gives them more control and more uh, empowerment over their learning. Um, we do have a number of adults who, who learn fully online, mm. but said that they all they have a, a, a teacher coach who works alongside them. So it's not a complete um, online experience. It is with the support of, of, a, of a human. And I think that's really, really important, being able to get feedback, uh, pastoral support, emotional support along that journey, because learning is never straightforward and it has its ups and downs and its potholes and all the rest of it. Um, but having that emotional support of a tutor is really important. Uh, and we have we have also been testing out and for the first time as we went back into um, external exams this, this year, the summer series, we were trialing out the use of virtual reality technology with students for relaxation and for mindfulness mm. to help deal with anxiety. So I think there is a place for, for technology alongside, uh, you know, the more human and emotional side of learning. That's really interesting. So is that sort of pre-exam, you know, you're in the run-up and you, you might have a half an hour, 10 minutes of, of that experience and it gets you in that mindset? Absolutely, that's right. We, we, we were using our our learning resource centres um, where students could come and have a go with virtual reality technology, trying out different approaches, but with a mindfulness um, uh, purpose to enable them to, to um, almost try and relax, deal with anxiety before actually going into exam experiences. And it, we found that to have a really positive impact and that's something we'll be doing more into the future. That's really, really interesting. And then the other question was, you, you, you mentioned your connection and making sure it's real world learning. Do you have any examples with industry where you've got like, you, you, you've just really enjoyed seeing your, your work in action and students collaborating with industry where you're like, that's a great example that to share as well? We've, we've got yeah many examples. I think the one that comes to mind first is the work that we've done with our health and social care students. So um, on four of our campuses, we have um, care skill suites, which are simulated um, uh, hospital wards and care suites that have been designed uh, with NHS trusts. And so they absolutely mirror what a student will experience when they're actually on a hospital ward. And what we found is that a combination of learning, so theory-based learning um, in a more of a traditional classroom-based environment using uh, project-based learning approaches, then using simulated learning environment on campus using the care skills suite, and then the students actually going into the real-world setting um, within the NHS trust. That sort of triangle or triumvirate of that type of learning, those three different learning experiences, has been really impactful and um, um, many of our staff delivering on those programs are also qualified, either nurses or midwives, and and are pro- professionals in their in, um, industry. And students just, I mean, the learning is just amazing. And um, you know, I've seen that through both our BTEC programs, but we've also delivered for the first year T levels in health, and that that experience is just beyond anything else that you know I talk to the students and they just say this is just amazing if we were learning purely in a traditional kind of as as it was before they wouldn't have made the progress they have and the skills they've developed that's absolutely fantastic and then and then just very quickly you mentioned at the beginning coming in as a part-time teacher I think it was 
and sort of thinking about the future of work it's almost like we've gone full circle um, and uh, you know engaging in that very much with sort of portfolio careers and being able to work in a flexible way um, perhaps even with multiple employers at the same time so um, I just wondered if you know whether you see that parallel as well between um, perhaps needing to flex around different um, requirements in life and, and how that's playing out in, in the world of work and then in the education that we support young people with as well. I, I totally agree. I mean, we've seen coming out of the pandemic different ways of working, hybrid, remote ways of working, and I think it's our responsibility to prepare students for that world of work because their, their experience will be very different when I enter the world of work. And what, what we've done is we've looked at um, how can we mirror and take learning um, and deliver it in different ways that students can have that experience in their learning of what will be mirrored in the world of work. So we deliver, you know, we, we took a, our strategy, developed our strategy for learning about 18, well, 12 months ago now, and um, it has four different approaches or strands. The one is on, on campus at a place, um, as it has been traditionally, the other is online using our virtual um, VLE. Uh, we use Canvas as our platform. Um, also then using mixed reality technology, and that's becoming more and more important to us. So and AI is really important for immersive experiences. And then what we call in the field with employers. And depending on which program you're on and um, your preference, we can dial up or down those different approaches to learning and the way you access it. And I think that's much more, um, you know, uh, relevant and reflective of the kinds of worlds of work and employment that our students will be going into uh, in the future. Absolutely. I love it. I, I kind of want to sign up straight away. <laughs> Brilliant. Our final guest in this episode is Dr. Richard George, a VP at Fathom. Richard's first career was as a research scientist working in academia and early stage biotech. Following an MBA and some time in life science venture capital investing, he started his second career in strategy consulting. Richard now combines his skills and knowledge to build AI products and new businesses that will greatly benefit society. In our chat, we talk about the findings from his report, Robot Proof Work Capabilities, which asks questions such as, what are the core work capabilities that students and employees should be learning now to future-proof their careers? To dig into all of that, let's get started. Here we go. Fathom has been going for about five years now, so as a startup, and then recently bought by Pearson last year. We've always had the, uh, the, the one mission statement, although it's evolved a little over time, but it's always been to, to help prepare the workforce with the skills of the future. So back when we started, we saw that work was changing rapidly and that the type of work that the founders were doing, I was doing uh, often to implement technology and the consequence often being that people's jobs changed and, and sometimes people would lose their jobs to technology implementation. And there was very little in the way of process or retraining, reskilling to help individuals learn new technology or move into new roles where they were displaced. So we thought it would be um, important to, to society, to, to individuals, to help firstly just alert people that this was happening, 
but then also um, really find ways of uh, helping people through identifying opportunities, like pathways to new jobs, new careers. So that's really the, the foundation of Fathom. To do this, we weren't going out to like, train individuals. We wanted to take a more scalable approach. How could we build uh, a SaaS platform, a technology that could help identify any roles that might be at risk of automation or any impacts of technology, and then identify uh, individuals and help them understand what options they had in the future, what uh, potential career paths they could take, and then what were the learning opportunities to take them there. That's the uh, the, the essence of Fathom. And we, um, we started off working with uh, uh, a few government organizations and then uh, and corporations, and more recently now working with Pearson, we can start to get to the, the individual and the consumer. So as part of the uh, workforce skills uh, business that we're in within Pearson, we're, we're now working with other uh, businesses like Credly, another recent acquisition, yeah. and Talent Lens, which do all the assessments. So if we bring all of these components together, we have this end-to-end solution where we can help a, a corporation understand how work is shifting and help with their strategic workforce planning, identify uh, learning opportunities for their, their employees, and with uh, Credly identify um, badging opportunities so to help um, uh, understand the, the skills within the organization that are currently there and where we can rebadge. And then with Talent Lens, they have a um, they have nine nine products around assessment, looking at all different uh, personality traits, behaviors, and uh, various uh, internal strengths. And these are um, uh, very useful for any individual to understand what their core strengths are, and then link those to potential future career opportunities. Because there's many jobs require certain uh, personal traits. uh, And if you have those traits, then you you may find that you have more enjoyment in those types of jobs. So it's a good way of assessing your own uh, interests. So once you have an idea of interests, you understand what careers may be in demand in the future, you can start to really define your career path and learning pathways. Thank you. So as the author of the report Robot Proof Work Capabilities, uh, which I've seen, what can you tell us about the trends you're seeing in the world of work and significant future of work attributes that you just talked about? Mm. To really understand what was important in the future of work, and we wanted to understand what capabilities are important to every worker, so every employee, what would they need to be employable in the future? So we uh, we build a model, which I say a model, there's probably about nine or 10 moving parts in this model. So lots of uh, machine learning tools and AI tools to help us predict the future and um, a lot of validation and evaluation of those models, which require more models to make sure everything is uh, working as we expect it should uh, and that it is as accurate as it can be when you look into the future. So we... We need to understand what work was. So we had a model of work. So we broke down jobs into tasks because when you, you do a job, you're not doing a job, you have all these tasks that you have to do. And with that comes different skills. And then uh, so we could take an entire, say, country. We could look at the UK, understand all the jobs in the UK from the national census, 
we can connect all these tasks and skills to those jobs. Then we wanted to project that workforce out into the future and see what would happen if we started uh, picking out different tasks and jobs with new technology that was coming in. So we uh, built a, what we call our tech taxonomy, and that has um, around 20 different technology types. Where, where the, some are uh, here right now, uh, impacting work, some are more futuristic, but we modeled out each one of these technologies. When, when will firms start adopting these technologies? At what speed would they adopt them? And to what extent? So we did a lot of research, desktop research around these technology uh, impacts. We then linked that. So every technology would be linked to a task in work. And we did that using a machine learning tool called uh, NLP natural language uh, processing and so what that model would do would read a task in, in one of these jobs understand what that was required for that task and then predicted what technology could actually do that task and because we had an idea of when that technology would come about and be adopted by firms all of a sudden we have now a, 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 what we call our model of evolution of work where we can see how jobs will change over the next 10 to 15 years so then uh, so we ran the simulation. We saw then what tasks could be automated by technology, what tasks could be augmented, and what tasks were pretty safe. And then we looked at all those skills that were impacted by those scenarios. And what was left over, it was in some ways quite surprising, uh, others um, maybe quite obvious, but there was a core set of capabilities that would be required for every type of job in the future. Because what the model was doing, it was removing some of these routine, mm. boring tasks, you might even call robotic tasks, they all disappeared and you were left with these very human uh, things. So things like communication and working in teams, collaboration, um, being uh, socially and cultural, culturally aware, having like a, a service mindset orientation, all these things are all, all very human. So that's, uh, we, we structured it into um, what we call our, our future capabilities and there's 32 of those and broke it down into um, different parts. So we saw that there was a set of core future capabilities. So they're, they're critical to all, all employability. And then outcome capabilities, which was about really taking your skills. So what's interesting in these future capabilities is that there are no technical skills because technical skills change so much. Mm. So what that means is one of these uh, outcome capabilities would mean that you have to, so that the, the capability of just personal learning and, and mastery, you have to keep learning and keep uh, identifying the next thing to learn. So within your job, you, you should be looking out for what does the, the business need? How can I support this business? Uh, what things can I learn that will add value to, to the work that I do and to my business? These sort of things fell out of the analytics, which uh, the, the model was there. Uh, it's, it is a model. It's, it's, it's always uh, an abstraction from reality, as we call it. But it, it was all quite intuitive as well. So there's certain things that uh, every uh, human 
needs to be successful in work. And a lot of those things are those human to human relationships and making sure that you're constantly um, educating yourself and, and learning and uh, identifying those, those things that will uh, get you to the next level or, or to the next uh, job or career. So that's really fascinating and, 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 you know, and it corroborates so much we hear about on the podcast about, mm. you know, um, not necessarily jobs being eroded wholesale, but this slicing and dicing of tasks and, you know, elements of your job sort of being taken away. And so therefore the job being reimagined and, and you know, what does that look like when it's put back together? And that very much being weighted towards the human side, so our creativity and our, our sort of critical thinking skills and that kind of thing. Um, mm. What I thought might be really interesting to end with is just thinking about any sector-specific case studies that you uncovered as an example of of this work. So whether that's in healthcare or in different um, different sectors that, that that you may have seen, and 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 sort of as an example how that played out. Yeah, sure. I- there was some interesting uh, observations in the modeling and it related to this and, and, and others. Um, so we, we definitely saw that there are some jobs which are at risk of automation and then redundancy. And uh, you, you can see that with the type of work that, say, an accountant would do. And there's, there's, it's a, accountancy is a good job. It's a good career. However, it is changing rapidly. Uh, our model suggests that around half of the tasks that you do as an accountant is a high chance that they will be automated by, by simple tools like robotic process automation. So you don't even need these advanced machine learning techniques. So there, there is, um, there's some careers that are high risk, but the people in those careers are highly educated and can quickly transition to, uh, to new careers because they, they know how to learn and they can uh, observe the, you know, the, the market's changing and can see how um, different jobs are in, more in demand and others not so much, so they can make these shifts. But I think what's, what's troubling is where you have, um, say, less skilled individuals, where um, a, a great example is probably the, uh, those working in um, retail. So if you work in a supermarket, and this, this ranges across all, all roles within a supermarket. So you have, um, uh, if, you're, if you work on the, as a cashier, you're, you're getting replaced by um, self-service checkouts. This is already happening mm. and will continue. And more so now within logistics and su- the supply chain to the supermarket, all those warehouses becoming uh, um uh, automated, uh, lots of robots replacing the, the typical manual labor. So, you've, and you've got a in the in the supermarket itself, you've got a highly female workforce, and uh, in back in the uh, in the in the depots, a highly male workforce. It's impacting everyone regardless of gender. Well, the issue with workers here is that it's not easy for them to re-educate. It's not easy for them to get the skills to get to the next job because jobs are becoming a, a lot more uh, knowledge-based. Um, where, whereas your knowledge workers who are at risk, like the accountant, they can shift pretty quickly because they have a lot of transferable skills. So I think there is concern why, the, why we, can, um, we can redesign jobs. Um, we're, we're building a module on our platform 
which allows um, managers and HR professionals to look at the tasks within a job, identify areas where they could shift some tasks around. Uh, particularly important in uh, in areas where we're looking at, um, say, highly gendered centric jobs, like in software engineering. How do we make these jobs more appealing to to women to come into? Uh, it's not just about say the culture of the organization or the it's often to do with the type of work and the enjoyment from that work. So how do we start changing jobs to uh, make it more accessible to different types That's, of people? That one's really fascinating. Is that around the sort of social dynamics of that task um, in relation to why it might be less appealing for women? I, I think absolutely, yeah. There, there is definitely, and this is uh, obviously, uh, it's always a touchy subject <laughs> yeah, whenever yeah. you talk about gender or, or race and, and work. There are certain jobs which um, are more appealing to, to females, more appealing to males. So you get a lot of engineers being male because they, they have, on average, they're, they're, they're drawn to that type of career. But it's because it's the nature of that career and the nature of the job and the nature of the tasks that you do. And I think there's a great opportunity to really look at how we, how we work and what we do in work. Now, from the, from the modeling that we've done, you could actually say the future is female because all those uh, human traits that are going to be required in, in work are often these more female traits, right? often the socialization and collaboration. So I think we've, I, you could call them female traits, female traits. I, I, obviously, every person has a mix of all these traits. Sure, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so if people want to follow your work uh, a bit more closely, how can they go about doing that as well, Richard? Well, I, I think uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, and I, I'm going to start posting a lot more on LinkedIn as, uh, as I've taken on more of a responsibility now within Fathom to be more uh, outward and communicate more about what we're doing. Yeah. So, yeah, link, LinkedIn, probably the best. Okay, fantastic. So thank you so much for your time. Great talking to you. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks so much to all of my guests and I loved getting into the examples of authentic assessment and simulation technology, reskilling and some crystal ball gazing of what the future might look like and where the opportunities might lie. Thanks again to Pearson and Bet for supporting this series on skills and thanks to you all for listening. Bye bye.